0: Marsha Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment.
1: I know that a lot of people really want to do the virtuous thing and escape their filter bubble or escape their echo chamber. And so they, you know, liberals will turn on Fox News for a week or conservatives will listen to NPR. And, and I applaud their their intentions there, it's very noble, but in practice it just tends to backfire and you know, the liberal <laughs> comes away from Fox News saying, you know, well I did learn something. I learned that the other side's even worse than I thought. <laughs> crazy Or vice than versa. Exactly. Yeah, They're yeah. even more unreasonable than I thought.
0: Today's episode was a very exciting one for Sagar and I. It's with Julia Galeff. She is the author of a new book. It's called The Scout Mindset, Why Some People See Things Clearly and Others Don't. This episode is great because Julia is a really strong thinker. She hosts the Rationally Speaking podcast. And the whole point of the book and the whole point of her work is that we all should be finding ways to think more critically to think more rationally and approach the different problems and trade-offs and choices we're going to have to make in our lives in a really effective but also rational way. The book really centers on this idea that there are two different ways of approaching the world. We'll get into this, but the first is a soldier mindset, seeing ideas as being about combat and forcing your way in, versus a scout mindset, which is better defined as being about openness and exploration. And what Sagar and I are trying to do with this podcast is push us much more closer to the scout mindset. So there's so much for us here as podcast hosts, but there's also a lot here for you all as listeners as you're trying to think about how you should think
2: about the themes of this show in a rational and Calm way. I really enjoyed speaking with Julia. And the reason why is that she articulates so well some things that I've intuited for a long time about myself, about the best way to confront things that you disagree with, about how I've grown as a person, as a political commentator, and more, both from this podcast and from my show with Crystal over on Rising. And she helped create concepts, which I can refer to which I really think I'm going to be using a lot in the future. I already referenced it once over on Rising, just in terms of what is a way that you can discourse with somebody else whenever you vehemently disagree with them on an issue. Something, a problem kind of obsessed with solving, something we talk a lot about here. And I think that she has given us some of the tools to do that. Now, given that Julia's written a book, you can go ahead and purchase Scout's Mindset on our bookshop. There's a link to that bookshop in our bio. And just as a reminder, that's a great way in order to help the show, an independent bookstore during COVID-19. Also, you don't have to purchase Julia's book if you don't want to. You can purchase any book from our bookshop as long as you follow our link, literally anything, and we still get the credit for it. The list of what you guys buy has been rolling in. And once again, it's not creepy. Like, I can't see who is buying. I'm only seeing what. And it's just truly incredible. It's really revving up. And it's awesome to see everybody get into reading all at the same time. With that, let's get to the question and answer period.
0: Today's question is from Apple Podcasts. Remember, email us at realignmentpod at gmo.com with a question, or leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts with your question in it. Today's question is from PorkPie95. Thank you for keeping it simple and readable. Fantastic pod. Marshall and Sagar, love your show, and I'm a huge fan of Rising as well. Given the recent media hubbub surrounding the Georgia election law, as well as the increasing prominence of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies, do you ever see a future where where the blockchain is used to facilitate voting, perhaps on a national scale? Something that crossed my mind recently is a sort of voter NFT, like an electronic voting token provided directly by the government to each eligible voter, which could possibly alleviate concerns surrounding voter identification, election security, as well as voter accessibility. Would love to hear your thoughts on this and whether you think we could ever move to a nationwide system of voting that is 100% electronic given concerns about security and the variability of voting laws across the 50 states.
2: Well, it's a nice concept, Mr. Porky Pie, um, but look, man, we can't even have an election with controversy around mail-in voting, and you're trying to bring in the blockchain and an NFT. Spare me all of the stuff about how the blockchain is actually about the provability, et cetera. I, it's not even that I disagree with you. I actually think it would be a totally rational thing to do, but knowing the way that our politics works, it's just not going to happen. What do you think, Marshall?
0: Yeah, so- Points for you, Pork Pie, because I actually loved how in this question you gave a pretty strong articulation of why if someone were setting up a voting system from scratch, they would use this system over our weird system. So seriously, points to you. I think that's the best articulation we've seen during a question of someone articulating what their vision of the world would look like and then asking about it. But yeah, I'm going to echo Sagar. There is absolutely no way that something this different or complicated would possibly be On the table. And also, let's remember something about our governmental system. It's not just that we arbitrarily have 50 different systems. Lots of states, actually, all the states by definition, run their own elections. That's in the Constitution. This isn't something that Congress or the federal government can mandate in any ways. So the system is the way it is for a very specific reason and it's not one that's conducive to broad sweeping changes of the sort you're describing but once again points for creativity we'd love to see other suggestions for voting politics policy anything that people have similar to pork pie
2: 95 yeah it's a great idea uh, but federalism's a bitch what can i say and with that as always a special thank you to the lincoln network let's go ahead and dive in Welcome to The Realignment.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely.
0: What's great about this, Julia, is we'll start, and I know you've been asked this question a million times on these interviews, let's just define the scout mindset, let's define the soldier mindset, and then we'll move into new territory. But let's just start there.
1: No, great. Uh, as a as a philosophy nerd, I always appreciate starting out just by defining all your terms before getting into any discussion. So uh, that works for me so yeah the soldier mindset i'll start there um that's my term for um the motivation to defend your beliefs against any evidence that might threaten them or to defend things that you want to believe um so this is it's not a new thing that i'm pointing at here um i'm sure people will have heard of it under different names like rationalizing or motivated reasoning or wishful thinking or denial um, to some extent, confirmation bias. Uh, but soldier mindset is the term that I give to that whole cluster of um, of ways of thinking because of just the language that we use to talk about reasoning. It's very militaristic. It's, it's it's very much like you know a soldier defending a fortress against enemy attack. We talk about our beliefs being well supported or buttressing our position. We talk about shooting down opposing arguments or you know poking holes in someone's logic. Um, so I call it soldier mindset. And then scout mindset is an alternative to soldier mindset um, because the scout's role, unlike the soldier, is not to attack or defend. It's to go out and see what's really out there as clearly as possible um, and form as accurate a map as possible of you know, the territory or a situation or issue. Um, so scout mindset is basically trying to see things as they are um, and not as you wish they were. So essentially trying to be intellectually honest and um, objective and fair-minded and just curious about what's actually true. Um, So that's what I call scout mindset.
2: Something I appreciated about your book, Julia, is that you opened it by talking about this trend in the mid-2000s of just Uh being like, our minds are doomed, like thinking fast right. and slow. Like they're, you know, like the human beings, naturally irrational. I see a lot of pessimism on this from the political side. People are like, God, you know, sheeple, etc. cetera. Right. <laughs> um, and... One thing I appreciated about it is like, well, look, like that's not the natural condition. It's just like a condition that does occur, but there's another one that does as well, scout mindset. Right. So let's talk about why it's very important to issue that corrective, to not be nihilist in thinking that we are built to think in a bad way. Now, is that even the case? And then what is the corrective that we can bring to it ourselves by utilizing the power of the human mind?
1: Yeah, so that trend that you're describing—it's—it's um, it's a very real thing. I think, I mean, partly it was—it was just kind of a new and exciting and interesting point, um, you know, 15 years ago to point out all these ways in which the human mind is irrational. So in that sense, I get why that um, that meme had such traction in our culture. And also, I think it, there's—it's just something there's something satisfying about complaining <laughs> about, yeah. you know the human mind being stupid or about people being stupid or inherently biased, um, I, I get why that's satisfying to make that point. Um, I just felt like there was this whole other side of the coin that was being neglected. Um, and, and it was a really important other side of the coin, which is that we're not always in soldier mindset. We do, you know, sometimes sometimes do the intellectually honest thing. We do sometimes notice uh, that you know our side was acting unfairly, or we do sometimes notice that we were you know being defensive or rationalizing, et cetera. And so I, I just thought it was really important to, um, to to focus on that other side of the coin and ask uh, you know why when we succeed, why do we succeed, and what can we learn from those successes, those times when we do actually manage to you know see things more clearly than uh, than we otherwise would. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that was a, a big part of my motivation um, in writing the book, in addition to which uh, I just feel like this element of motivation, um, like whether you're motivated to defend a pre-existing belief or motivated to try to see things as accurately as possible, was a really neglected element in all of the discourse around how to think better and how to have better judgment um, and that most books and articles about improving judgment tended to focus on giving people knowledge like here's a list of cognitive biases or a list of logical fallacies, um, which is good and valuable. And I'm not really complaining about that. It's just that, you know, you can use that knowledge in different ways depending on your motivation. Uh, you can use it to try to identify flaws in your own thinking and improve your way of seeing the world. Or you can use it, you know, as a cudgel with which to beat your opponents in an online argument and poke holes in all of their arguments, uh, which isn't necessarily the best way to improve your own thinking. So uh, I thought it was also important to just focus on this element of motivation and less on, you know, having lists of biases and fallacies. Got and it. I feel like I might've forgotten the big part of your question. So please just refresh my memory. No,
2: no, you, you basically nailed it, which is, I okay. wanted, I wanted that corrective to like yeah. mid 2000. Cause I do think it's really caught on as a meme around like, oh, we're just doomed. People are so dumb. Like they just listen to what they're told or a confirmation bias It's like, well, sometime, but like not right. all the time. Uh, Marshall, right. go ahead.
0: Yeah, well, I I will pick up the cudgel that you slightly left when it came to the tools. So I don't think that teaching people logical fallacies has improved discourse or thinking, and that's why and that's why the mindset yeah. thing is important here because you can give folks a toolkit of slippery slope or just all the list of them red herring, people, yep. yeah. red herring ad hominem, <laughs> yeah, ad hominem, yeah, and I don't think that in any way has improved the discourse. So. Yeah. Let's just take a quick correct to make this a little clearer. How much is there a trade-off between scout and soldier mindset? So is there a world where I wake up in the morning and let's pretend I'm a little more online than I am to make my podcast? get big. I get in fights with people on Twitter where I need Uh to be a soldier, where I need to shoot people down, where I need to dunk. But then I go have lunch, and I'm calmer, and then I'm a scout. Is that something that people can do, or should you really treat this as an either or?
1: Yeah, so it is true. It's an important point. I'm glad you brought it up that we're not, there's no such thing as like, some people are pure Soldiers and other people are perfect scouts. Um, it is—it's a spectrum, and we're all a mix of both. And we might shift from one mi- mindset to the other depending on the context or the day. So, you know, you could imagine like someone who works as a trader um, being in scout mindset at work and is really, uh, really motivated to notice things like assumptions he was wrong about um, or ways that the the market is behaving that he didn't expect, and then he goes home and is in soldier mindset in his personal relationships and is, you know, unwilling to acknowledge the validity of any views opposing his and his marriage or unwilling to notice any problems with his children, something like that. Um, so that that's a very real thing. Um, and, and to some extent, we do naturally shift between soldier and scout mindset um, uh, depending on our kind of unconscious goals in the situation. So, you know, if your goal uh, to take another example, um, if you're an entrepreneur and you're just having a private conversation with a friend about your business, you might be have automatically the goal of Scout Mindset to try to help have your friend help you figure out, you know, what are we doing wrong? How could we Um, improve our business. And then at work the next day in front of your team, if someone criticizes you, you might automatically shift into soldier mindset with the goal of defending yourself against an implicit threat to your status or your competence, um, and just be reaching for reasons to defend the plan you've already settled on. Um, So to some extent, we do this kind of implicit, mostly unconscious calculus of like, you know, should I be in scout or soldier mindset in this particular situation? But my claim is that we, we're not great at doing that calculus well and that mm-hmm. there are many, many situations in which we unconsciously reach for soldier mindset. Um, but in fact, scout mindset would be the better choice for us, um, certainly in the long term and sometimes even in the short term. Uh, and so a lot of my book is about exploring why do we, why do we overweight soldier mindset and reach for it uh, so automatically sometimes, even when it's not good for us, um, and how do we shift towards scout mindset instead?
2: Yeah. So Julia, I mean, I think the book has been, it's been widely received, lots of acclaim. In oh, your nice. opinion, what are the best critiques of your book and of your argument?
1: Oh, I love this question. Um, so, well, to, to actually relate to your previous question, one of my favorite critiques of my thesis um, is that the process by which we by which humans unconsciously decide whether to be in scout or soldier mindset, that process, the critique goes, is already optimized. Hmm. Um, So humans just naturally evolved to be good at, at, you know, striking the right balance between scout and soldier, Um, good at deciding when uh, soldier mindset is best and when scout mindset is best. And the, uh, the name for this claim is that humans are rationally irrational. So, Uh, that might sound like a contradiction in terms, but there's actually two different senses of the word rational that are being used in that uh, phrase. There's epistemic rationality on one hand, which is about having accurate beliefs, an accurate Mm -hmm. view of the world. Um, And then there's instrumental rationality, which is about effectively achieving your goals, whatever those goals might be. And so the claim that humans are already rationally irrational, is claiming that we're already choosing just the right amount of soldier mindset, like just the right amount of irrationality in the epistemic sense, in order to achieve our goals. Um, And those goals include things like, uh, you know, being happy and being, you know, fitting into our tribes and appearing confident and high status and things like that. So uh, this is a an argument that has been put forth by some evolutionary psychologists and some economists at, uh, for example, George Mason University. I think the phrase itself, rationally irrational, was coined by an economist I really like named Brian Kaplan. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wrote a couple of papers uh, and discussed this in one of his books. Um, so I think this is a really- this Is this education
0: like, book? Yeah. Which book
1: uh, I, th- I think this might have been in the myth of the rational voter. Okay, yeah. Justice, mm. But I could be misrepresenting it. Has a, that. it has
0: a, I remember this book because it has a cover of Sheep on it. So it comes back to our oh, Sheeple yeah. <laughs> well, like, argument yeah. from earlier. <laughs> There's like a common
1: thread yeah, <laughs> linking a, uh, a lot of Brian Kaplan writing. <laughs> sheeple 101. <laughs> um, that is true. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but he, he kind of goes into more detail on the rational irrationality model um, in another paper that I can, I can send you the link to later. I don't remember the title. Um, so yeah I think this is one of the more um, like subtle and sophisticated ways in which my book could be wrong okay. um, because you know if we're already rationally irrational then I, I kind of have nothing to say nothing to <laughs> offer people in terms of why you should adopt the scout mindset like if you're already optimized then you know I can appeal to your desire to, to have accurate beliefs just because you love truth for its own sake but I can't If this were true I couldn't promise you that scout mindset was going to make you better off than you already are by default. Um, So you know spoiler alert I don't actually think the rational uh, rational irrationality thesis is true. Um, I can talk a little bit about why. Yeah Uh, go ahead. Great thanks. I uh, so you know I think there's it's always important to to um, to ask why might humans not be optimized for, um, for a particular context or task? What are the differences between our world now and the world that we evolved in? Um, and so even if you think it's true that humans were perfectly optimized for the world that we evolved in, it's a very different world than the one we live in now. Um, and I think those differences uh, bear um, significantly on the scout soldier trade off that that we implicitly make. So, for example, Um, We have a lot more opportunities now to make choices that have the potential to seriously improve or um, destroy our lives than we did in the ancestral environment. So, you know, we can choose who to marry or whether to get married at all. We can choose whether to have children. We can choose where to invest our money or uh, what medical treatments to try. Um, how to make ourselves happier, um, whether to stay in the community we grew up in or leave and find a different community that we might fit into better. Um, What career to choose? I could go on forever. But the point is, we have all these choices to make. And the more choices you have to make, um, the more useful it is to have an accurate map of yourself and how the world works and how people work in general and what your options are. Um, And so that. That drive to see things accurately and form as accurate a map as you can um, is something that's much more useful now than it would have been for our ancestors back in the, you know, tens of thousands of years right. ago when we evolved. And so, you well, know, I this is bring a-
0: something would yeah, you, I, I just want to bring up an example that came to mind when you're talking, because what I love about the book is. I just when I was taking notes there were just a lot of useful tools here and frameworks and one of those useful frameworks was this idea of betting and you give the example of Jeff Bezos when he started Amazon when he had to decide do I leave my you know high powered Wall Street financial firm or do I go take a risk in the internet industry in the early 90s. So it's not the same thing as starting a tech company today, obviously. And he's calculating, you know, when I'm 78, which decision am I going to regret more? Mm -hmm. You know, tech companies have a, what, 10% success rate. So there's all these different calculations that you're putting in, which that's where the soldier scout really sort of dynamics and come into play there in a way that I don't think quite approximates any caveman centric example you could think of there. So I think that's just the perfect example we use there.
1: Uh, No, that's actually, I'm glad you brought up that example um, because thinking about uh, like trying to estimate messy probabilities, like what is the probability that if I start an internet company that I'm going to succeed? um, And and like what information should I bring into that decision? Um, Those are exactly the kind of complex and messy and honestly abstract, questions that we have to think about today that our ancestors didn't really like the questions we evolved to think about accurately were the very kind of concrete questions like if I jump from this rock to that rock am I going to be able to make that jump effectively or you know uh, can I catch up to that animal that I'm chasing or whatever we do make those judgments pretty effectively because we evolved to and they're very like concrete and tangible but these abstract questions that today in the modern world are often so important for our well-being and our ability to you know have the cause the change we want to have in the world um those are much trickier and it's much more easy to deceive ourselves about those questions um so yeah when when jeff bezos uh i I bring up jeff bezos in the book as an example of um of scout mindset in a lot of ways Uh, and when he was deciding to start amazon and uh and trying to think realistically about what is the probability that i'm going to succeed a lot of people who are starting companies in that situation do you know Tend towards soldier mindset and try to convince themselves, yes, I'm definitely going to succeed because they feel like they need that motivation. Um, but Jeff Bezos was kind of an exception in just trying to see things as clearly as possible. And his guess when he estimated those probabilities was that he had about a 30% chance of success um, with the company that he was going to start, uh, which is already kind of unusual for a, for a startup founder. And so I think it's an interesting case of how Jeff Bezos was able to be you know, happy and motivated and ultimately quite successful despite his um, insistence on scout mindset in those early days. It's I wanna
0: a good pl- point. I, I, yeah, go quick, 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 quick thing. Sorry. I just want to play with it because this came up uh, during your episode with Eric Torrenberg, who's also been on the podcast. Eric yeah. made the point that a lot of people in the Silicon Valley space who are interested in this type of work, argue very and you you just said this but just soldier mindset that that you know really intense belief in something is necessary to succeed in those type of ventures and you yeah. raise Jeff Bezos Elon Musk as people who didn't need that as as the counter I'm wondering Right is it probably not the best to use just the apex tech founders as these examples, right? The two people that are just the, just the best at it. not they're not that they're the best at it, but obviously they've had just they're consistent outliers. success. So yeah. I'm wondering for the mean tech founder, right? So just like your 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 median, your mean, your average tech founder. How do you think about it in that context? Do you think soldier mindset could be more useful if you're not at the talent or skill level of Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? Because I think obviously in the outliers, I get the argument, but I'm wondering how much that applies to just like the mean.
1: It's an interesting question. I mean, part of my motivation in choosing especially prominent examples was just that those are the examples that the discourse usually focuses on in arguing for soldier mindset. Um, Like people will say... Actually, people have said this about Elon Musk, that, you know, okay. look how important it is to delude yourself and be overconfident. Um, look at Elon Musk. He, uh, One quote about him said uh, he can't even conceive of the possibility of failing. And then this is used as an explanation for why he's so successful. Um, but in fact, as you sort of alluded to, he said many times that his motivation works in the opposite way of that, that he actually... Yeah. Thought he had only about a ten percent chance of success with both uh, Tesla and SpaceX, and he just kind of accepted ahead of time that probably he would fail, and it was just important enough uh, to him to try anyway. Uh, and so, you know, I, I thought it would—I thought it was valuable to point out that the narrative that the most successful mm-hmm. um, entrepreneurs are actually, you know, self-deceived, and this is a good thing for them—that's actually. It doesn't really hold up if you look at a lot of the examples. I'm sure it does hold up for some people, but it's like an important corrective to say that no, actually many tech founders uh, are, are uh, counter examples to this narrative. Mm. Yeah. So um, I do think that's important. As to your question about how, like, would it work differently for the kind of a more typical founder? I don't know. I don't have a great intuition about that, but I can tell you that I talked to a bunch of more kind of ordinary, successful people who told me (laughs) similar things and they- Mere millionaires, right? mere, exactly, mere (laughs) Mere multi-millionaires. Um, (laughs) And uh, and their their stories were similar. They were just, you know, less recognizable and exciting. So I didn't feature them as prominently in my book. Um, I think it's important to note that the claim that I feel I can make with confidence um, about this is not You know, you will definitely be more successful if you have scout mindset about your uh, odds of success than if you have soldier mindset, or, you know, you will be 20% more successful if you have scout versus soldier mindset. I don't think I have any way to know that. And if anyone else claims the opposite, that you're, you know, definitely gonna be more successful with soldier mindset, I don't think they have any way to know that either. Um, we'd need some crazy study <laughs> too right. uh, that I don't think is actually possible to run in real life uh, to be able to draw that with, with confidence. But the thing that I think we can say with confidence is that it is not true that you need soldier mindset. Um, and, and I think we know that because look, there's tons of counterexamples of successful people both at the you know, high end, you know, middle echelons of success who like clearly uh, did not... We're not trying to deceive themselves about their odds of success. So, that alone, I think, is an important point to make that I, I didn't really see being made elsewhere.
2: Yeah, um, people can go check out Adam Newman for uh, some counter examples. Right. Uh, and actually, I, w- I do want to say people, I read the Brad Stone's book on Amazon. And one of the interesting things about Bezos is he always assumed that it wouldn't work and then said, How could we make it work given these conditions? And that was actually incredibly useful to some of the earliest products at Amazon. It's something I've always at least respected about him. I think one thing that might be useful here, Julia, which is that. Uh, You come from the rationalist community. There's a lot of discussion Mm -hmm. about this on Twitter. um, I could hear the quote marks
1: in that even even without looking at you. Yeah. Yes,
2: correct. And it's one of those things where everybody says it. Nobody actually knows what it means. This Uh is kind of uh, comes obviously from that. Maybe give some of our listeners who've heard similar memes or similar discussion, etc., what is the rationalist community, something you've been part of for a long time? How did it inform your work? How did it, you know, develop those concepts that you feature so prominently in the book and which I find incredibly useful? Go ahead.
1: Sure. Yeah. So the term rationalist is not my invention, um, but it it Uh, Grew to describe this community online in I guess the early 2000s um, that developed around these two blogs overcoming bias and then later less wrong which spun off of it Um, and the term was coined because it uh, because of a specific meaning of the word rationality in the academic literature, Um, the. The, the dual meanings of epistemic rationality and instrumental rationality that I was talking about earlier. So basically yep. uh, the study of how to have more accurate beliefs and how to choose more effective strategies for achieving your goals. Um, and so this these two blogs were, uh, were focused on those two topics. And so the community came to call themselves rationalists. Uh, and it is in retrospect a somewhat unfortunate choice of moniker um, because the word rational um, means such a different thing uh, to many people colloquially. It means, you know, mm. I think I'm right and you guys are all idiots <laughs> and, um, <Sheeple>. and so, <laughs> keeps <yeah>. <laughs> And so, you know, there are often, I often see a lot of critiques of the rationalist movement or of quote rationalism um, that amount to, you know, oh, wow, I can't believe there's this community of people that think they're all rational and everyone else isn't. Um, that's so arrogant and unwarranted. Uh, and my reaction is like, I agree, that would be un- arrogant <laughs> and unwarranted. And, and I do, in fact, know people, or I like see people online who have that attitude that they're rational and everyone else is irrational. Um, and I find that super annoying, but that's not what the rationalist community is about. Um, and, uh, you know, not that there aren't some arrogant people who call themselves rationalists, but uh, for the most part, like, the reason that I like this community and, you know, I'm happy to be part of it is because there's so much focus on this kind of um, turning the lens, the critical lens on your own beliefs. um, The kind of thing that I espouse in the scout mindset, uh, noticing the ways in which your own judgment is flawed and, you know, thinking about how to correct for that. um, And, you know, following norms of, of discourse as a community that help you achieve truth more effectively together. Like, you know, being willing to talk about the evidence for your beliefs and being willing to change your mind and um, discuss your confidence level and not just claim to have 100% confidence in everything, but have varying degrees of confidence, depending on how strong you think your evidence is. So uh, those are the kinds of norms that I think make the rationalist community special um, and make me happy to be a part of it. So. Uh, that, yeah, a, a lot of the ideas that I talk about in my book are, you know, you'll you'll hear echoes of those if you, you know, read some classic posts from Less Wrong or talk to a bunch of rationalists.
0: Got it. You know, I'm glad you brought up critiquing yourself because something we were discussing, you know, before the episode started is that you actually had to rewrite portions of this book right. once <laughs> you discovered that the social science you're utilizing wasn't actually making the point you thought it was making or was faulty. So just talk about that process.
1: Yeah, so this book did take me a long time to write. Um, and one of the reasons was that I, so I wanted to write a really rigorous and evidence-based book. And I spent months going through um, the academic literature relating to scout mindset. So on motivated reasoning, um, on related things like overconfidence and, and uh, confirmation bias. And I you know, found a bunch of studies that were interesting and I wanted to cite in my book. And then a turning point for me was when I found a study that purported to uh, go against my thesis. So it purported to, to claim to have found that actually soldier mindset is what makes you successful in life. Uh, and so I, I found the study and of course, immediately my eyes narrowed and I was, I was like, let's check out their methodology section and see, uh, <laughs> see if it really stands up to my rigorous standards. And uh, it actually didn't, it was, it was a poorly done study. Um, And so on the one hand, I was like, great, so I can ignore this. And then on the other hand, I was like, well, you know, what if suppose the study had found that scout mindset makes you successful, what would my reaction have been in that world? And I realized, actually, in that case, I would have, you know, put it in my list of things to talk about in the book. and so that thought experiment made me realize I was not being sufficiently critical or, or um, rigorous in uh, evaluating the studies that seemed to support my thesis that I was intending to cite in the book. And so I had to go back and read through all of those studies uh, more critically um, and really ask myself, like, do I really think this is strong enough evidence to cite or do I just like it because it happens to say what I want it to say? Uh, and that process ended up with me throwing out a bunch of the studies, um, honestly, most of the studies that I had set aside to cite. Um, and so the book is actually relatively light on academic research. And that's one thing I've seen some people complain about that it doesn't you know, engage with enough of the academic research. Um, and I think this is actually a really interesting question, how to write a rigorous book um, in an era where so much science, uh, psychological science and just social science in general is just not very good, um, and I can give an example of what I mean by not very good science if you want. No, but uh, people, yeah, yeah. The, the
0: audience yeah, yeah. is screaming yeah. for it. Obviously, sure. like, like,
1: say it, say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, one uh, category of problem is just poor approach to measurement. So, for example, um, one. Class uh, or category of studies looks at um, the effects of being self-deceived, and so the question is, how do you measure whether someone is a self-deceiver? Um, how do you measure self-deception? And uh, a, a characteristic study would do something like this: they would ask um, the participants to rate themselves um, compared to their peers on how, you know, how socially skilled do you think you are? How academically successful are you? How, you know, um, charismatic are you? Etc. Um, and then they classify you as a self-deceiver based on whether you rate yourself as higher than average compared to your peers. Hmm. So <laughs> the problem with that is they, they have no objective standard of comparison by which you know, to tell if you're actually wrong about your self-perception. And so they end up with these conclusions that are like, uh, people who rate themselves as being more academically successful uh, and more socially skilled are, in fact, happier and more successful than average. And this proves, they say, that self-deception makes you happy and successful. Ah, uh, yes. Um, but actually, the Occam's razor explanation for those findings is just people who, like, many people actually are, you know, more academically successful than average, just like that's A how plus students, are, A plus right. students
0: are. A-plus students are going to mark that they are right. more academically successful.
1: Right, so all this actually shows is that people who are, you know, smarter and more socially skilled than average are more successful. This is not, there's no need to like invoke self-deception in this story at all. So that's like, that was one big problem was the lack of any kind of objective standard of reality by which to judge whether people were self-deceiving. And then another big category was just uh, the contrived nature of a lot of these experiments. So, you know, a study might um, measure the benefits of being over-optimistic about how difficult something is going to be um, by giving people a little puzzle to solve, like a geometry puzzle, um, and telling some people this puzzle is going to take you, you know, this puzzle is easy, it'll take you 10 minutes, and other people like this puzzle is really hard. And then you see how long does it take them to give up on the puzzle. Um, and, you know, maybe this is an interesting question, but it doesn't generalize very well to real world situations like whether being overly optimistic about your chance of success as an entrepreneur is helpful to you or not. Mm-hmm. Um, cause if people like give up after five minutes on a puzzle, um, that tells us very little about whether they would give up, you know, in the, the marathon of starting a company. Um, it's, that's, that's interesting.
0: Just, that's okay. That's actually really, so here's a, here's a study I'll ask you about then. Yeah. Um, the marshmallow test just comes to mind. Yeah. In terms of a, so this is, um, you, d- can say, explain this. The is your space. Test. Could you, yeah. you will explain this better than I can? Um, sure. just what the marshmallow test is and whether or not this falls into the category you're describing.
1: Yeah. So the, in the marshmallow test, I mean, this isn't really my area of expertise, but I've read about it. Uh, you wrote a they, book,
0: therefore we're going to appoint you the expert <laughs> here.
1: <laughs> I wrote a book using the word psychology, therefore. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So they uh, set, I guess it was toddlers, young children in a room with um, with one marshmallow and left them alone for, I don't know, 10 minutes, something like that. And were, they were told if you uh, if, if when we come back, you haven't yet eaten the marshmallow, then we'll give you two marshmallows as a reward. And so some children couldn't help themselves and just ate the marshmallow right away. And so they didn't get the two marshmallows at the end. And other children had the self-control uh, to hold off and they got their two marshmallows as a reward. Uh, and then this question of whether the, the kid successfully didn't eat the marshmallow was used as a predictor of, of success later in life. And the study claimed to find that kids who held off on eating the marshmallow who passed the marshmallow test were more successful at everything later in life. Uh, And I think this has been, some significant doubt has been cast on this finding, you know, in the last 10 years.
0: So something that I'd love to talk with you about, which is a bit meta is you host a podcast. It's called Rationally Speaking. And what is so cool about the podcast, I started just doing research, but then I actually just listened to some episodes because they were fun. I especially recommend your episode with Matt. Um, You have a really strong rapport with him, Matt Iglesias. But you're talking about complicated subjects, some of which are incredibly controversial. So, you know, everything from a colorblind, debating a colorblind society with Coleman Hughes um, to immigration with Matt, um, cryptocurrencies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How, has hosting a podcast where you're coming as a like neutral observer and just asking fair questions. How has that revealed the ways that you are either biased or aren't thinking about things the right way, or just had some really faulty assumptions. I'm just really curious Mm. on like a personal level, like what that process has been like.
1: Oh, well, uh, I guess I would say it's helped (laughs) me. It's helped instill in me the habit of, um, double checking my assumptions about what people mean, um, because I would say at least half the time when my instinct is to um, to jump to the conclusion that someone is wrong or saying something idiotic, that they're actually just using words in a different way than I am. Um, so uh, an example might be, well, I, to take an example from conversations I've had about my book, uh, sometimes, when it seems like people are disagreeing with me and and saying that you know actually you should just be optimistic all the time, um, and and to me I think that I think they're saying that you should always you know overestimate your odds of success. Actually, it turns out what they're saying is no, you should just you know, keep a cheerful attitude and focus on Mm -hmm. what you can change instead of dwelling on what you can't change. And I agree with that. That's (laughs) totally sensible advice. (laughs) And it's not not what I'm arguing against. And so I, you know, in my life, I've had a bunch of arguments with people where in retrospect, we were just using the word optimistic in two different ways. And we never really bothered to try to like be precise in the conversation about what we each meant. And if we had, it would have gone much better. (laughs) And so as a podcast host, um, I guess because I am more paranoid about you know misinterpreting someone or um, or or you know, I'm so so much more focused than I would be in a normal conversation on making sure it's a good and you know congenial and productive conversation that I I've tried much harder to ask myself like okay what might they mean by that and if I'm at all unsure asking them to clarify um, and just asking those clarifying questions about you know so when you say X. What do you mean by that do you mean like x1 or x2 or something else mm-hmm. those kinds of clarifying questions have led to some of the better conversations that i've had on the podcast and it's a habit that i've tried to bring into my non-podcast life as well could you give us
2: like specific issue areas um maybe from your podcast and era where this becomes really useful because i want to try and operationalize this as much as possible for people who are listening um Obviously, I come at it from a more political lens, business, and more just from your discussions generally. Where you think that your work has really clicked with people, or maybe you've even convinced somebody who disagreed with you.
1: Um. Yeah. So you're you're asking about um, times in which, uh, like, a political or a business setting in which talking to someone about scout mindset has produced a useful change. Yeah, or just using it. Yeah. So yeah.
2: some of the examples, example, maybe your you know, your best example, you think from the book of where it was really useful, um, and and how it led to a more optimal outcome.
1: Yeah. So I use the uh, the techniques I talk about in the book. Um, I was really focused on making sure I didn't recommend things that I didn't personally find you know mm-hmm. useful and use on mm-hmm. a regular basis. Um, and so one example is uh, an aspect of scout mindset that I struggle with a lot is admitting to myself that I might've done something wrong or um, taking criticism about something that I've done. And I, I know a lot of other people struggle with this too. And so one category of technique that I and many other people have found really helpful is just about making yourself more open to even considering the possibility that you might've been wrong or that someone's criticism of you might be justified. And the technique for being more open to it is before you ask yourself, did I do something wrong? Or like, you know, did I make a mistake? You first ask yourself, if it were true that I did something wrong, how bad would that be? Or what would I do about it? So you you just set aside the question of, is it true at first? And instead focus on the question of, if it were true, what would I do? So uh, one example um, from my personal life is, I was kind of worried that I had done something inconsiderate to a friend, um, and I, so I spent a couple of weeks kind of in the back of my mind obsessing over, you know, oh, should I apologize? I don't know. I really don't want to, and I just kind of went in circles with myself. You know, sometimes arguing to myself, no, nah, I didn't really do anything wrong, and other times arguing to myself, oh, I'm sure she's forgotten already. Um, and and so then I stopped and I asked myself, okay, suppose it were true that you had to apologize. How bad would that be? And what would you do? And uh, so I thought about it and I realized, okay, well, I guess I could say such and such. And I kind of quickly came up with an example of an apology I could give in my head that I didn't feel too bad about. And I sort of pictured her reaction and I realized, you know, I expect she would actually take it really well and be appreciative. Um, And this conversation would actually probably go pretty well. And so I, I was able to get to a point where I felt okay at the prospect of having to apologize. And then I returned to my original question, should I apologize? Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that point, it was it was much clearer than it had been for the past <laughs> two weeks. Like, yeah, I should apologize. Come on. <laughs> um, and so I think this is just a specific example of a general phenomenon that uh, in order to be able to think clearly about the question, you know, is this unpleasant possibility true? you first have to feel like you would be able to deal with the unpleasant possibility if it were true. And so you want to like reverse the order of those two uh, questions.
0: For the last bit here, I want to just hit a couple points from the book that I just love so much. I just pulled out in the notes. Um, So two things that people typically do to put themselves in better context or think better that actually don't work under your framework. So one Mm -hmm. would be that the typical way of just getting outside of your filter bubble, that doesn't work. So I'd love for you to articulate like why that's true. And then secondly, you really shoot down the whole like team of rivals idea as like mm. something that leads to success, which is of relevance because a lot of people who are into the political side of the show will know that this was a really important metaphor during the 2000s. This was the debate about should President Obama put together a team of rivals? Should Hillary be VP? Should right. she be Secretary of State, et cetera, et cetera. So I just would love those two examples because in our context, at least, those are the ones which people have probably heard the most. Totally. Yeah,
1: great, great. Yeah, so I know that a lot of people really want to do the virtuous thing and escape their filter bubble or escape their echo chamber and so they you know liberals will turn on fox news for a week or conservatives will listen to npr and and i applaud their their Intentions there. It's very noble. But in practice, it just tends to backfire. And, you know, the liberal <laughs> comes away from Fox News saying, you know, well, I did learn something. I learned that the other side's even worse than I thought. Yeah, <laughs> Crazy. vice than versa. I thought. Exactly. Yeah, They're yeah. even more unreasonable than I thought. Um, I love and, it. I, quick,
0: quick thing, Joey. I love in your yeah. example, one of the, one of the, the, One of the either the liberal or the conservative in the study, like couldn't even listen to the other show for for the week of the experiment. They just turned it off halfway through. Yeah.
1: I, I think yeah, I think it was NPR, the the conservative in that, you know, not a formal study, but a you know, little little experiment that a magazine set up. Um, the conservative was just like, I can't listen to NPR. I've tried, it's been three days. I'm sorry guys, I know I said I would do this, but but I think he did oh no 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 that was reading reading the new york times and jezebel those were his assignments as a conservative and he just couldn't yeah Yeah. i especially um but uh but he did listen to npr i want to give him credit for that and in that experiment uh the liberals were listening to i forget which some some right-wing talk radio um and maybe it was reading the Drudge report anyway yeah so both sides came away from that just saying oh god the other side's even worse than i thought shoot Mm -hmm. me now and, and so, you know, what I think people are doing wrong um, in their attempts to get out of their echo chambers is they're, they're turning on whatever the most prominent example of the other side is that they know of, like Fox News um, or NPR. And the problem with this strategy is that the way some source becomes a prominent representative of a side is by kind of playing to their base. Like Fox News became so successful by Mm -hmm. playing to their base and saying the things that their base, you know, loves to hear. And, you know, often that includes kind of strawmanning or mocking the other side, i.e. the liberal who's just tuning into Fox News to escape her echo chamber. And so what you end up doing is, you know, listening to arguments from, uh, from a source that is not trying to, you know, make them in a way that will make sense to you. They're not trying to be accessible or approachable by you. They're they're doing the opposite, really. And so you're making it, op- like, maximally difficult for yourself as someone who's listening to the other side um, in these situations. And so instead, what I argue you should be doing is looking for representatives of the other side on whatever issues, um, politics, ethics, etc. You should be looking for representatives of the other side that you have at least a little bit of common ground with. You mm-hmm. know, you share maybe some intellectual premises, like maybe you're a libertarian and they're also a libertarian, but you disagree about climate change or abortion or something. Um, or looking for representatives of the other side that you kind of like for whatever reason, like maybe they seem like reasonable people, or maybe you find them funny, or they seem like good people. Um, you need, basically the point is you need at least some kind of uh, kernel Mental of anger. goodwill right. or, yeah, exactly to make it possible for you to listen to their arguments and potentially, you know, learn something from them or at least be able to recognize, oh, okay, that's kind of a reasonable point, even if I don't agree. Um, the even like broader point here is just that it's really hard to uh, to change your mind, even if you're, you know, very smart and going about it in good faith. Um, our beliefs are just these kind of tangled networks of all, you know, interconnected, uh, inter- interconnected beliefs. And so, um, this is a difficult task to change any one of them in isolation and we should be making it as easy for ourselves as possible and not as hard as possible.
2: Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. no, I just think it's interesting because I almost naturally had to come to this because I do a show with crystal balls, like somebody who I, you know, kind of disagree with, almost on a daily basis, but we have to tr- literally the premise is that we have to try and find areas where we can agree and then if the you know the solutions and more and have amassed, like and same here on this podcast, frankly, a people of all stripes, right, left, libertarian, yeah. socialists, et cetera. It's actually been incredibly helpful. And it relates to what I'm getting at is that it used to be when I was more partisan or worked in more partisan media, you would get criticized and you're just like screw them. And slowly it had to get to one of those things where I'm like, oh, do they have a point? Like, yeah. what are they saying? Like, where are they coming from? And you de- first you develop a thicker skin, which helps. But second yeah. is really just saying like, all right, well, what are they getting at? Because they're they're genuinely angry. Look, some of these people are bad faith and that's just how it's going to be. But yeah. let's say they have, especially more normal people, like people who aren't who don't have an incentive to gin up the hatred, they're doing it because they're angry. So you should hear them out. So I guess that gets to something that you write about, which is that one of the ways um, to solve for this, quote unquote, is to, quote, hold your identity lightly as a way to approach your scout mindset. That really resonated with me. Can you explain exactly what that means?
1: Yeah. So this is my riff on a phrase that was made popular by a tech investor and essayist named Paul Graham. He has an essay called Keep Your Identity Small, where he, he says, you know, Beliefs like your political views, your religious views, um, they become part of your identity in the sense that you kind of take pride in them. And if someone disagrees with them, you take it personally and you you know, uh, it, it feels like someone's stomping on your country's flag uh, when they disagree with you. And, and this is true much more broadly than politics and religion, um, you know, I lived in the Bay Area for a while. And so I can tell you that people's views on which programming language is better better than which other programming language, those can definitely become part of your identity uh, and lead to some very heated disagreements. And so Paul Graham's point was just, you know, if you want to be able to think clearly, you should just let as few things into your identity as possible. Um, And... So I and many other people read this essay, you know, 10 years ago, and were like, great. Yes, I agree. We're going to just not identify as things, you know, I won't call myself a Democrat, I won't, you know, call myself, I won't identify with the, the causes that I support. And, and so I think this is valuable advice. It's just, it's hard to actually carry out in full, <laughs> like, just practically speaking, it's hard to avoid, you know, uh, saying like, yeah, I'm a vegan, or yeah, I'm an American, like, there's some labels that you just like, practically speaking, have to use for yourself. Uh, And also, if there are movements that you care about and think are valuable for the world, like, I personally, am a big fan of the effective altruist movement, um, which is about helping the world as much as possible with reason and evidence, um, then it can be really valuable to identify as an effective altruist publicly to kind of lend your support to the movement. And so... I'm not necessarily disagreeing with Paul Graham here. I'm just, I wanted to point out that having identities, having some beliefs be be part of your identity is inevitable. And what you have to learn to do in addition to um, keeping your identity small is to hold those identities lightly, to be able to say, you know, yes, I'm whatever, a feminist, uh, but that that identity doesn't define me um, and it's contingent. So, you know, I, I call myself a feminist because that is an accurate description of my beliefs. But you know, to whatever extent I disagree with feminism, I you know am happy to talk about that. And to whatever extent I come to believe that feminism isn't true or is harming the world, then I will no longer call myself a feminist. So the you know ultimately what matters is you know my beliefs and not defending the identity the the label that describes those beliefs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you know, from the outside, this can often look very similar, like, you know, yes, I call myself a feminist, or, you know, yes, I call myself a rationalist, but on the inside, it feels very different. Um, and it, you know, can result in you feeling less compelled to jump into every internet argument where someone is criticizing feminism or criticizing the rationalists uh, and less, uh, less driven by what I sometimes call someone is wrong on the internet syndrome. Um, So that's a a side benefit of holding your identity lightly is feeling less compulsion to defend those beliefs from every rando on the Internet who criticizes them.
2: One sec, Marshall. I cannot emphasize that enough. There are are a lot of something Ben Thompson actually said, which really helped me with this is he was like, look, when you're onboarding all of humanity, you onboard the bad parts, too. And I was like, you know, that is so helpful, <laughs> which is that it's like, yeah, like there is there are bad parts of humanity, obviously. That also gets onboarded to the Internet. The Internet by itself is a flattening force. And so it equalizes it. And you're like, God, there's so many terrible people on the Internet. It's like, no, there's some terrible people in humanity. We just don't have to interact with them necessarily in the same manner. It just right. helps it put it into perspective of like, you don't have to do it. Uh, one of the best things right. personally that I ever did was step back from Twitter Um. After spending basically five years straight on the platform, haven't been happier um, ever since. Go ahead, Marshall. (laughs) Yeah, I know this is. That's actually
0: a good place to leave it with this question, which is, how can folks who are trying to engage in healthy conversations, think rationally, put themselves in spaces where they don't have to bring out the soldier mindset cudgel, how should they behave on the internet? Because I feel like the subtext of so much of this conversation and the book is just that all of the instincts from the algorithms to the communities to these dynamics really encourage folks to – not adopt the productive, healthier part of this. So what's your, what's, what's your advice on this, right? You have, you have, you know, you have like a, a lot of followers on Twitter, like you're, you're podcasting. So you obviously are in these spaces and there are stakes there. So how do you think, how do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I haven't yet adopted the strategy uh, of just, you know, <laughs> burn it all and walk away. <laughs> um, I, I do still engage on Twitter and, you know, have a, a bunch of followers on there and, and yet I, for the most part, find it a really good and healthy experience, which I know doesn't match a lot of people's experience, um, and that's in part because over time I've I've like made the conscious choice to try to cultivate
2: mm-hmm.
1: a good experience for myself, and also one that that encourages me to be a better version of myself, like to uh you know subscribe to newsletters and follow people on Twitter who. Uh, are going to inspire me to be more like a scout and not like a soldier um, and to kind of carve out a niche for myself as someone who, you know, attracts the kind of people who actually want scout mindset and and don't want someone who's just going to play to all of their preconceptions um, and tell them what they want to hear. And so what that does for me now is a nice side effect is that um, if I were to be more of a soldier online, I, I feel like my followers would call me out for it yeah. <laughs> and, and criticize me for it. Um, and you know I care about their approval. I'm human like anyone else. And so um, expecting that you know, people are going to admire me when I like, live up to the values that I'm preaching um, and that they're going to be disappointed in me if I you know, straw man someone else or, um, or uh, take the easy bait from trolls, um, mm-hmm. that does kind of help keep me in line. And uh, I'm not saying my experience is necessarily typical, Um, it's probably atypical in a bunch of ways, but the general principle I do think holds for anyone that, you know, you choose the experience that you have on social media. And if you find yourself griping about, you know, all of these people who are Trolls or biased, or you know, just want to yell or dunk on people, you could just not give those people your attention. Like you could just unfollow them, and you could just you know start looking for the exceptions and following the people who are more nuanced and thoughtful and reasonable, um, and just surround yourself with those people instead. And I think uh, that will a <laughs> make you happier on a day-to-day basis, and b um, help encourage you over time to be yeah a better version of yourself.
2: Such an important point. Before we go, I wanted to shout out there's a guy named Paul Scholas. He goes by Lindy Man. He has an excellent Substack post on this called Creating an Environment, which will put in the show notes and it emphasizes that, which is that a lot of people, in my experience, they'll rack up follows by being like, oh, they said something interesting and they'll follow it. Right. And then let's say that person like turns two years later, they very turns. rarely like <laughs> take the opportunity to <laughs> unfollow. Um, I right. highly recommend that. It actually is worth, if you're gonna spend and devote hours of your time and attention, just go take a right. screen time, cultivate it. Think of, right. but, would you move into a house And just like ramshackle, put stuff together, or are you going to design it in order to be comfortable? So that's just something I want to make sure that people take home. Julia, this has been a great app. Oh, please, please. Well,
1: I just wanted to say, you know, I think it also helps to feel like you have, um, this was another element of, um, how to learn from people you disagree with uh, that I didn't mention earlier. Just feeling like you have some kind of shared goal that you're to some extent on the same team as people. So you know, if you if there's people you feel like, oh, those people also care about making the world a better place, or oh, those people also are you know fans of of like progress and uh, or capitalism or whatever it is that you think is a really good thing. Um, those are people you're going to be better able to learn from and listen to. Uh, on Twitter, and this actually kind of gets back to Marshall's earlier question about the team of rivals that I never answered, oh, um, which yeah, is that do. people uh, people often point to Lincoln um, and his team of rivals as this role model um, because Lincoln invited his uh, political rivals into his cabinet after he won the presidency. The people who had been uh, his competitors for the Republican nomination. Um, and so people point to that as an example of, oh, so he, you know, wanted to learn from people he disagreed with. Isn't that wonderful? And it actually didn't work out all that well. That's kind of the, the dark secret of the team of rivals story. Um, he succeeded
2: political. in spite of not also wanted to do that. Like, just so people know, like he had to, for political reasons, the right, cabinet exactly. at the time it, was totally different. Yeah.
1: yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, <laughs> It was. It's maybe a good story about his ability to, you know, stay zen in the face of, uh, like while carrying out
2: Samuel Chase.
1: Exactly. It's like, it's like, Shut up,
2: Samuel Chase. All
1: right. <laughs> exactly. I would. <laughs> I would pay to see you reenact the, yeah. <laughs> the, team of rivals fights. Um. Yeah. No. So his, his these. You know the people in his cabinet weren't you know brilliant people he he thought he could learn from in spite of their disagreement. They were just political rivals who he needed to have in the cabinet for strategic reasons. And yeah. uh, three of them didn't last through his tenure. Uh, they quit either because they you know didn't want to be there or they didn't respect him or he fired them essentially because they were trying to usurp him. <laughs> um, and only one of them actually ended up. You know, providing some useful pushback uh, and changing some of his disagreements, so it was like a partial success. Um, but you know, the problem there, if if you're looking at it in terms of learning from people you disagree with, the problem was that the political rivals were never people who felt like they were on the same team as Lincoln. They were his rivals. They were trying yeah. to defeat him, um, and so it makes sense in retrospect that you know they didn't have a bunch of productive disagreements that ended up changing people's minds. And so you should do the opposite of that, actually, on Twitter and <laughs> Loyal Facebook and in your life in general. Just, you know, people who you feel some camaraderie with, and also you disagree with them. And those are the areas in which you, I think you can learn the most. I love that point.
2: Okay, Julia, this has been such a great episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where can people check out your podcast, Twitter, anything else you want to plug here?
1: I'm Julia Galef on Twitter. Um, come join my community of people who are enthusiastic about Scout Mindset. Um, my website is and You can read more about what I've been doing. And my book is The Scout Mindset, um, which you can find on my website or on Amazon. Julia. And then my podcast is Rationally Speaking. And you can go to RationallySpeakingPodcast.org.
2: Love it. All right. We'll have that, avail- that book available on our bookshop as well. And whenever I tweet out this episode. Thanks, Julia. We'll see you later. My Thanks, pleasure. Julia.
1: It's been fun, guys. Thank you.
2: Thanks for listening to the episode, guys. We really appreciate it. Make sure you go ahead and check out Julia's book on our bookshop. The link is in the bio. You can purchase any book there. It helps our show and an independent bookstore during COVID-19. As always, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network, and we will see you all next week.